0: If you want to really understand God's plan for you personally, you need to understand his plan for everyone and everything, especially Jesus Christ. And you can't understand any of that unless you're willing to look into the Old Testament. And that's what we've been doing. It's hard to believe we're 26 weeks today into a study we started back in April. We have six more weeks after this, looking through the whole story of the Old Testament, looking for clues about God's big story, what he's doing in humanity. And it sets the stage for the Christmas season when we focus on the coming of Jesus as he stepped from eternity into time. I love to watch movies with my wife, Vit. Vit is the ultimate television or movie viewer. She's a feeler with a high degree of focus on detail very empathetic, a script writer's dream. Everywhere they want to take you, she's there. The questions they want you to be asking, she's asking out loud, why did they do that? What are they going to do next? She's the perfect viewer, and it always heightens my experience to have her right alongside me, providing the third dimension of the experience, (laughs) the emotional dimension. But one part of every great drama that Vitt hates is that moment where it seems the darkest, where evil seems to be winning, or where the relationship seems irreparably broken. Vitt hates those moments. They're just too much for her. She will at times say, I can't keep watching. (laughs) I say, you need to watch it, because you have to be here in order to appreciate how it's going to end. Where we are today is that part of the story, the greatest story of all time, the true human drama. We're getting into the part where it cannot possibly get darker and where Israel cannot seem to have failed anymore. And the result is so devastating. Some of us would say, I just can't handle this. I don't want to be in this place. But you have to go through this stage with us. Even more, we have to see ourselves in the story. It's going to seem dark, but there's hope ahead. There there will be light. Is it called twilight when the sun hasn't quite come up over the horizon yet? We will be there by the time we're done six weeks from now, but we have to walk through this darkness. We just have to. We are about to see Israel fall apart. I'm going to cover 400 years today. So I have 100 points, each with 4 subpoints, one for each year. Though, obviously, this is an overview, and I just want to walk you through the list that's in the back of the insert, which are the kings of Israel. Then we're just going to zoom into a couple of instances and then do some evaluating, stepping back out and looking at what we can learn for ourselves. So Saul, David, and Solomon each reigned for 40 years. Under David, we have the true united kingdom. Solomon presided over that kingdom. Solomon began walking with the Lord, then fell into idolatry. As a result, the prophet, and you'll notice the sermon title is Kings and Prophets, Prophets being the voice of God, warning about God's judgment if they don't follow in his path. In Solomon's day, a prophet came and said, because of your evil, the nation is going to be lost to you. Not in your lifetime, because I made a promise to your father. And even when you lose the nation, I'm going to preserve a portion of it so that my covenant with David, and we now understand not just with David, but with the whole human race will continue. One of the first things we see in this is that in spite of the unbelievable failure of those who would lead the nation of Israel, and in spite of Israel's whole failure to follow God, and their loss of the promised land as a result, as we'll see next week, in spite of all that, God's sovereign plan is unthwarted. He maintains a path through even that darkness, even in this downward spiral. So Solomon lives out his life, and as the prophet of God had said, his son Rehoboam loses the kingdom. Ten tribes of the north become known as Israel. Their capital is Samaria. Two tribes remaining in the south, Judah and Benjamin, become known as Judah. That's where Jerusalem is, all that remains under the authority of the throne of David and his offspring. The northern tribes go to another king. I encourage you to read through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. It's well worth your read. But as you go through it, you'll see kings of Israel, kings of Judah. Now you understand the difference. Let me just explain how I've color-coded this. You'll see several names that are green and in bold. Can you see that? Those that Scripture records as having any kind of a heart for God. It's a pretty devastating list here, isn't it? I actually should have had Solomon only part green because the back half of his life, he fell after idols. So out of 48 kings, six, eh, five and a half of them were honoring God. That's, that's pretty devastating. You'll notice in the northern kingdom there isn't a single green name. Not one of those kings followed after God. And by 722 B.C., prophets calling them to repentance, saying judgment is coming. Finally, the Assyrian kingdom comes in. Samaria will play a very interesting role in the time of Christ because uh, Assyria takes the Jewish tribes out of the northern kingdom, brings in other displaced tribes... And the result over the centuries that would come is a commingling of their idolatry and folk religions with the worship of God, which is why Samaria was so despised by the time of Christ. It's important to understand this. The ten tribes of Israel are removed from the land and never return. They're done often referred to as the Lost Tribes. From the timeline of Scripture, God has no further plans for the ten northern tribes. All of his focus now is Judah. You see a succession of kings, only a limited list of which followed after God. About 320 years before they are finally taken out, we refer to the northern kingdom as the Diaspora, the Dispersion, because they never return. We refer to the southern kingdom being conquered by Babylon, Jerusalem's wall being destroyed, the temple flattened, uh, and the people being taken away. We refer to that as the exile, and we'll uh, deal with that next week because even in exile... God is still at work. So this is the group through which God's going to continue his plan. That's the overview. It's pretty depressing. Some of the more famous stories in the Old Testament come out of this period. You have Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Worth our taking note of on their individual basis. But our goal today is just to take the big picture. So that's the overview. What, what do we learn in the midst of this? Here is the big idea I want you to think about. How do, we, how do we look at this ancient time with kings and prophets and idol worship and take something that fits into our modern context and our own faith journey? Well, here's how I want you to think about this. Here's the big idea that I think will help us cross that textual bridge. In some sense, we are all kings and we are all worshipers. All of us have a domain over which we rule, over which we exercise our will. For some of us, it's a very small kingdom. And some of the young people in this room might say, I don't have a kingdom. Well, you, you do on some level. And as you get older and get independent, you're going to have your kingdom too. It may just be your life, but we all reign over something. In some way, we are all sovereigns and we are all worshipers. And so this story is a dramatic illustration for us about how important it is to tune our lives to the worship of God and to direct our kingdoms under the true authority of God and the absolute disaster that befalls those who do not live according to that pattern. Really, it's the same thing. It just looks very old and very ancient and very, you know, kingly. (laughs) But it's really the same story that you and I all live with. We all exercise authority over something. Even those of you that say, all my decisions are made for me. I'm a victim of other people. Trust me, that's your choice on some level. God has given each of us a will. That's part of being human. There actually is a lot to learn here. And what I want to do is zoom down into just a couple of areas to draw out two keys and one startling absence or neglect in the stories of these kings that I believe occur in our own lives and keep us from experiencing the life God has for us. Go with me now to 1 Kings chapter 15. We'll start at verse 9. This is King Asa of Judah, who's one of the green kings. He's one of the good guys. Verse 9, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. This is the key phrase, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. Now, actually, David was his great-great-grandfather. They're saying he had a heart for God like David had a heart for God. So he was a true son of David. Look down at verse 14. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all of his life. Take note of that phrase too. Although he did not remove the high places. So we got two key phrases here. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then a second phrase, however, he did not remove the high places. Places. Let's go on. Go to verse 25. This is Nadab, who's a king of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. What does verse 26 say? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the recurring description of these kings. Either they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Let's go down to verse 33. Basha, king of Israel. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, son of Ahijah, became king of Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, you have the qualification, did right and did evil, but always in the eyes of the Lord. Now, look with me uh, forward to chapter 22. There are numerous kings of Israel during this time, but the successor to Asa in Judah was Jehoshaphat. Let's read beginning at verse 41. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, became the king of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. Go down to uh, the end of verse 43, and what does it say? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then you have this phrase repeating, however, the high places were not removed and the people continued to offer sacrifices, burnt offerings. Okay, over and over again, you see those observations made. Those that did right in the eyes of the Lord, most of whom have an exception, which is but they didn't remove the high places, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then you have those who did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, we know they didn't remove the high places because that's where they worshiped. Here's a couple of observations that jump out. First of all, I want to focus on this idea that these kings are evaluated not by how their population viewed them, not by how their advisors viewed them, not by their popularity rating. They were viewed through the eyes of the Lord. And that brings me to idea number one. As we are stewards of our lives, as we administer and rule over our lives, Like these kings, listen to me, we serve for an audience of one. We need to ask ourselves, what is it in the eyes of the Lord that I'm doing? Because we can fool men. Dan was just telling me today about a local church. A couple of brothers who were in business decided they were going to build this mega church. And it turns out the whole thing was a sham. And it's been huge in the news. I actually had these guys work on a house that I was flipping a few years ago. And uh, they said, yeah, we're building a mega church. And we bought all this property. And half of it were doing this construction job. And the other half were building a church. And the way they conducted themselves doing their business made everybody in my town upset. They had a horrible reputation in my town. So I knew something was up. And all the while they're doing this work, one of the brothers is preaching, he's evangelizing, but it's all very kind of macho and, and didn't have the, the peace and the humility of Christ. There were those for a time that found that bravado in those brothers very attractive. And now who they are has really come out. The whole thing was a sham, Listen to me, in the eyes of God, it was always a sham, right? God knew from the beginning. Whatever they were doing for man's viewpoint and for their personal well-being, whatever front they were putting on, whatever hyper-spirituality or secret knowledge from God they were claiming to have that fooled people, didn't fool God. All of us, the responsibilities that we have, those areas that God has given us stewardship over, we serve over them knowing that God is looking at us. And it's his opinion of us that matters first and foremost. I hear in that centuries later the voice of Peter saying, we must obey God rather than men. We live, we serve for an audience of one, the eyes of the Lord. Let's look at this second idea. It's interesting that even those that were good are only mostly good, even those that personally followed God, left the high places. And that's the second idea. What got in their way was a tolerance of the wrong type of belief and idolatry and of immorality to the degree that we tolerate that in our lives, areas of our lives that we can control. And I think we can have a lot more control than we're willing to take in culture around us, and to the degree that we tolerate idolatries of all forms, even if it's materialism and secularism, what we're doing is we're allowing those things to be. It's interesting to take note. When Israel came into the promised land, what did God say to do to all of the idolatrous and immoral people that were in the land? What did he say to do? Drive them out completely. And they didn't do that And sure enough, that is the very thing that ultimately works its way into their lives. That's why God told them to clear the land, because he knew that either they were going to be wholly his, or what they tolerated, what they put up with, would eventually own them. That's true in all of our lives. The things that you're tolerating right now, idols that you're worshiping, uh, immoral acts, those things that you're tolerating that you know you could change, they are slowly taking over. We see that happen here. That's the slide that occurs. That's pretty strong, but I think it's important because it occurs in all of our lives as it does in Israel. Now, there is this startling absence or neglect. I want you to look with me at the story of Josiah. We're going to start in Second Kings chapter 18. There are three kings in succession. This is well after Israel has been obliterated and dispersed. Now the focus is just on Judah. And these are among the final kings of Judah. Interestingly, even as Judah is on its way down, its end has already been determined by God. He's already said through the prophets, he's going to send them out of the country. They're going to be gone for 70 years. They're going to return a more righteous and purified people. Even though that's already been determined, we have these highlights. We have Hezekiah, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, Scripture says there has never been a king in Israel before or since Hezekiah, which means Hezekiah was the most righteous king of all, even more righteous than David. We know David had his moral failures. Hezekiah was upright and righteous. Then we move to Manasseh, As great and moral as Hezekiah was, Manasseh was that bad. He's the worst of the worst. Look with me at Manasseh's story. In chapter 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Now listen to this. He built the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Hezekiah was the one king who actually tore down the high places. His son (laughs) rebuilt them. Worse than that, he built altars in the very temple of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry hosts. Are you picturing what's happening here? Remember when we looked at the tabernacle, we talked about the holy place and the holy of holies, where God alone dwelled, where they went in with fear, where the Shekinah glory was present? Manasseh dares to set up idols to other gods. Let me, let me read on. This is how bad it gets. Verse 5, in both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. Worse yet, he sacrificed his own son in the fire. He so sold out to idolatry that he practiced the horrific practice of those people. This is why these people were judged by God preceding Israel coming into the land because they would kill their own children. And when it says that he passed his own child through the fire, try to picture how detestable this is. He had set up altars in the very temple of the one true God. And where he likely sacrificed his own son was on the very brazen altar of the temple. That symbol of the sacrifice of the Son of God and the blood of the Lamb. Can it get any darker than that? Their end is sealed, but then there is a grandson named Josiah who comes. Here is what happens. Chapter 22. Josiah has a heart for God. And he wants to clean up the temple. And he begins to use money that had been set aside a long time ago. And they begin working in it. And it says they found the book of God in the temple. We're going to pick up the story in verse 8 of chapter 22. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphon, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Think about that. (laughs) All these years. Where has it been? In a pile someplace. Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me um, a, a book. What book? Shafan said, read from it. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, what did he do? He tore his robes because he is the first king in generations to read the book of God. Think about that. Remember when we looked in Deuteronomy 17 about God's job description for a king? What was the primary job of the king? Know that book in and out. Have a copy of it with you at all times. Have it in your bedroom. Have it on your throne. Breathe it. Work it. Rule with it. And that's idea number three. You cannot adequately... Administer justice over your area of influence in life if you are not a person of God's book. If you're not a person of God's book. Those three ideas come out so strongly in this that it's easier for us to now look back and say, well, of course, that was their downfall. But it happened over 400 years, and it happened degree by degree by degree. And when you compare the state of humanity today and compare your own struggles spiritually as a follower of Jesus... This is just a picture of us, isn't it? That's all it is. It's a little more dramatic because it happens over there in the Holy Land. But it's just you and me. It's just you and me. Even though Judah's fate is sealed... God gives us Josiah. And you know what Josiah does? He goes to a prophetess, and he finds out that the fate of Israel is sealed. But because he's going to follow God, God says to him, I'm going to hold back that judgment in your lifetime. He has the whole nation renew the covenant with God. And for the first time in generations, they practice the Passover. I love that. We studied the Passover. We know why that's there. That's one of those righteous pins on the map that lead to the blood of Christ. And here we have, even in this darkest moment, a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of Christ. It's dark now, but God hasn't given up his plan. Redemption is still at work. There is still a future. This is just the picture of the human race. And left to ourselves, letting our passions rule us, creating idols of our own making, whether they be deities or financial securities... (laughs) When we pursue those things, it's a path to destruction. It reminds us all that we need a ruler over us as we attempt to exercise authority over our lives. We need a king who is over all kings, right? And as we wrestle with our passions, those things that we worship, that we are drawn to, that our affections have us bowing to, we need a great deity to worship, that lets all of those idolatries fall away. We need a Lord over all lords, and His name is Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Father, thank you for even the glimpse of that in in this most dark of times in our story. Thank you for the hope. We, we've entered into it, we've experienced it, we've seen ourselves in it, and we recognize that even as Israel failed and so many fell away, you still called, you still worked, there's still hope. There were still those who called out of hunger for you and you responded and answered them, and we still see the redemptive path to Christ. Father, we, we honor that today. We ask you to rule over our domains. We ask you to rule over our hearts. Be the king in our lives. Be the Lord in our lives. Be everything, Christ in all, above all, before all. Christ always. Amen.